Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon this morning is entitled, Not Despairing, Biblical Hope in Christ and His Gospel, Renewed by the Word of God, by the Lord's Day, by the Lord's Supper, and by the season of Advent. We need constant reminders of the great promises that we have in God because we do grow weary in well-doing. And we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 27 this morning. We see David growing weary and well-doing to some degree. There's a, there's a bit of a step back here in the richness of his faith in this chapter. If you recall, as we looked at 1 Samuel, we've been working our way through 1 Samuel. There are two primary people in 1 Samuel, and they are put there by God in contrast to one another. One is a child of God, David. And the other one is a false conversion, Saul. And the false conversion does many good things. Saul does many good things. When he dies and David hears about it, he stops everybody in their tracks and says, This was a great warrior of Israel. He fought many of your battles and gave you great victory. And then he points to the women and he says, Those gold earrings you're wearing, King Saul got those for you. King Saul did many great and good things. And yet, He proves himself again and again to not be a lover of God. King David is a lover of God. He's a man after God's own heart. And in the process as well, he does stumble from time to time. God so richly sets forth both of these that we might really be able to see what they really do look like. Because our tendency is to think that a false convert is just going to be somebody who is constantly, obviously unconverted. Or that a true convert is just simply going to be a saint all of the time in absolute perfection in everything they think, do, and say. But in 1 Samuel, we see these two beautifully set forth. Where you stand to honor the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel 27. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me any more in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maoch, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish in Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. 
Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If now I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Gerashites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from the ancient times, as you come to Shur even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive, and he took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, Where have you made a raid today? And David said, Against the Negev, or the southern part of Judah, and against the Negev of the Jeremiahites, and against the Negev of the Kenites. David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, Otherwise they will tell about us, saying, So has David done, and so has been his practice all the time he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David. He has surely made himself odious among his people Israel. Therefore, he will become my servant forever. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us now to read this with understanding, to be able to comprehend it, its message, as we contemplate your faithfulness and our great need of your faithfulness and our earnest desire that your Holy Spirit would live big in us, granting us a true and lively faith that we might be valiant for truth. God, we ask that you would help us to make application to this, to ourselves in this day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, what basically we see in this fairly short chapter is David becomes discouraged. And so he sort of takes matters into his own hands, if you will, and flees to the southwest. He's in Gaza, what we would call today the Gaza Strip. That's where he is. This is the old area of the Philistines, and it goes all the way down and touches Egypt. That's where he is at this point. And he becomes a friend of one of the kings, Hakish. But he lies to the king. He tells the king that he is going and making raids on southern Israel. But he's actually going and making raids on other places. And that's what's taking place. That's kind of the short of it. But in verse 1, look at verse 1. It says, Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. He doesn't say, Boy, it's been tough. And God who has brought me safe this far will lead me safely home. Sort of the John Newton Amazing Grace perspective. What has happened here is that David has grown weary in well-doing. He who has been valiant for truth and confident in his good God over a period of time can be worn down. Christians can be worn greatly by the weakness of their flesh, the assault of the world, and the ongoing attack of the devil. And some Christians have withstood remarkably for a season, and sometimes for several seasons. And then they begin to feel the weight of that 
and the burden of that over a period of time, and they began to despair. And we can see despair in these opening lines. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. He has taken his eyes off of the sovereignty and the power of God, and he just sees that Saul is always breathing threats and always trying to get him. And he's grown weary, and so he now turns and runs. There's no indication here. No prophet has come to him. This is not like Joseph going down into Egypt to escape Herod, where an angel comes and says, do this for a season. That's, that's not what's taking place here. David has simply grown weary here, and now begins to despair of his life in believing that Saul is, in fact, going to become victorious. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So I'll, I'll live. I'll, I'll be the king over these 600 men in this little tiny kingdom. I'll, I'll just go do this. He's really taking his eyes off of the promise of what God has provided for him. But one of the things that is happening here is that David is growing in his understanding of the depth of his enemy's hatred. He does actually see that his enemy, Saul, truly hates him and wants him dead. Very few Christians believe that the devil hates them and wants them dead. But he is a liar and the father of lies. And he is a murderer. And Satan wants Christians out of the way. And any Christian that draws near to God steps into the crosshairs of Satan all the more. And we should understand, like David, the depth of the hatred of our enemy, Satan. In the same verse, he, in his despairing, we understand that we are not to. And we want to, be, we want to be careful here. Every one of us, if the light was on us all the time, would see ourselves like this. We understand this. This is the same David, by the way. This is the same David who later is going to write Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. By the way, Psalm 42 and 43 are the resolution. They're the antidote for his despair. That's where he preaches to himself. Why so downcast, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Put your trust in God. In Hebrew, it says, strengthen yourself to God. Strengthen yourself to God. Make it happen. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And he says that three times in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Preaches to himself. But he hasn't apparently written that yet, or it's not near him right now. He's having, a, he's having a bad day. Many Christians have, and we want to be truthful about that before God and before one another. Second Corinthians is the Apostle Paul telling us that he has had some bad days. He is telling us, in fact, throughout Second Corinthians, he tells us quite a bit about some bad days that he's had. But Paul is valiant for truth. Paul, like David, is a lover of God. But we see also some transparency here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4, 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. As we have received mercy, therefore we do not lose heart. That's kind of a retelling, if you will, on most of the phrase that if Christ has not withheld his only son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If we have salvation in Christ, let us not lose heart. We're going through some difficult times, and people go through difficult times at different times in their lives. We all do in various ways. But he says, let us not lose heart. And then in verse 6, 
of the same chapter, he says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of the God in the face of Christ. So in the midst of difficult times, both in the history of Israel and the kingdom of God, and in your own life, light can shine forth in the midst of darkness. Dark times come, and Christ is there, and God can bring great glory to himself out of dark times. We want to look for that to happen and ask God to glorify himself. Verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, and not from ourselves. God wants to do it in such a way that everyone says, this is the Lord's doing. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way. Here he begins to say, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. What a fine line he cuts there. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. If you don't know that, you can be bitterly disappointed with the various difficulties and setbacks of this life. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. And then verse 16 Therefore, we do not lose heart. But through our, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Momentary light affliction is what Paul calls the difficulty that he had. And if you read 2 Corinthians 11, you'll see the details of that so-called momentary light affliction. Well, David himself has had a great deal of affliction, a great deal of persecution, and in this moment he is considerably worn down. And we ourselves need to be mindful about that. We need to be in God's Word and reminding ourselves about the faithfulness and the presence of God. And we need to be reminded about these things have happened to the great saints of old. And why should we expect any different? We see these very things happening to the Lord Christ as he escapes for his, from his life on several occasions in the Gospel of John alone. And so we want to read to understand the very nature of how God works. John 15, every vine that bears good fruit, I prune that it might bear more fruit. That is the one passage that most of us wish were not in Scripture. And yet, the reality is Christians are glad that it's in Scripture. Because if there was a better way, that's how God would do it. If there was a better way for you to produce more fruit than pruning, then that's how God would do it. Every vine that bears good fruit, I prune, that it might bear more fruit. God is interested in great and good and abundant fruit. He's looking for that in us. God will supply all of our true needs to his glory. Though he has no reason To trust Saul's promises, he had every reason to trust the promises of God. David had no reason to trust Saul's promises. You remember we read it just last week. It was the repeat of uh, Saul trying to take David's life and David having the opportunity to take his life, but he didn't. 
And at the end of both of those chapters, Saul reaches out to him and says, wow, you're more righteous than I, David, and let's make an agreement, and, and I'm sorry, and, and I'm going to go back to Gibeah now. David had every reason not to believe Saul. And David had every reason to believe God. That he who began a good work in him, what was that good work? He sent Samuel, a prophet that everybody knew, to anoint him in front of his family to be king of Israel. He who began a good work in you, David, will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. As we contemplate these things, we want to recognize ourselves in these situations that we are like this. David is going through a long period of valley of vision here between the actual anointing and his actually becoming king, very parallel to Joseph. Both of them actually become king at 30 years old. Both of them go into difficulty or begin to go into difficulty. Probably, well, Joseph, we know he was 17. David, we're not exactly sure of his age, but very likely late teens was when he was anointed. And then he goes to an extended period of time of valley of vision before he actually becomes king and is free of the persecution of King Saul. We recognize that opportunity there, and over a period of long time, years, three years, four years, five years, ten years, we can sink into despair. When a situation doesn't change over a period of weeks and months and years, we can sink into despair. And that is the very purpose of the Word of God, to remind us of the precious promises of God. To remind us that he that watches over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. To remind us that nothing is too difficult for him. To remind us that he does work through these various ways. And so when we find ourselves in despair, when we find ourselves in any form of sadness or melancholy, we must hold that on a short chain. It is is a call to prayer. Listen to that again. Melancholy and or despair is a call to prayer. Soon we'll be in January, God willing, and often in the past our church pretty much every year has called the congregation to a season of prayer and fasting in the first week or two or more of January. I've reminded that fasting is the purpose of freeing yourself from the things of this world, letting go of the things of this world. That as you fast in food in particular, it just helps you do that. But the idea of your stomach having a little bit of a signal there to you saying, hey, I'm hungry. The historical Christian approach to that is that that is God calling you to prayer. Because it isn't just the idea of fasting. It's the idea of prayer and fasting. The idea that God would be calling us to prayer. Sadness is a call to prayer. We would not want to remain in it. Despair is a call to prayer, to read God's word, to pray the Psalms, to come before God, and to assure ourselves in his presence of his goodness and of his power and of his faithfulness. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118 started out those first four verses, indicating that to us again and again. We need to remind ourselves of that. Verses 2 through 7 are simply the description here that he does a self-inflicted exile. This is not directed by God. It's a self-inflicted exile. And a lot of times we bring ourselves into difficult situations. But here he goes out of the country and begins to befriend Akish, one of the Philistine kings. Verse 4 is interesting here. Notice this. 
Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. He no longer searched for him because he actually thinks that David is gone. I don't have to worry about him anymore. He's, he's just become an exile. I don't have to worry about him anymore. So he's not searching for him anymore. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, our sins leave us even though we never left them. Sometimes by the providence of God, our sins leave us. The things that led us into temptation are simply out of our path or out of our reach for a season of time. And David is out of the path and out of the reach of Saul for a season of time. And so Saul just returns and sort of is about his business only because David is out of sight, out of mind. We need to be mindful of that. That This is no indication that Saul has become righteous. He's stopped searching for David only because he thinks he doesn't need to anymore. He still hates the idea of David becoming king and his dynasty coming to an end after only his own reign. Well, in 5 through 7, we see him going, David going down into obscurity. There is a great deal of humility here. He is very humble before the king there, and he really is truly trying to just sort of hide out. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing wrong with turning aside for a season of rest. That's not what's taking place here altogether with this escape. But there's nothing wrong with asking God for a season of rest or pursuing a season of rest in difficult circumstances. That is a very perfectly legitimate thing to do. But in this particular case, he goes, and he goes to Ziklag. Ziklag, by the way, is a Philistine city here, but it's actually promised, as are all these areas that David takes, all of these areas are promised to the children of Israel during the conquest of Joshua. Joshua doesn't conquer them all, but they're all under, you can see it in Joshua 13 and other passages, Ziklag is one of those cities that was promised to the children of Israel. So David is, in fact, only taking what was not finished in the conquest in this process. It doesn't seem like that at first reading until you've read the whole Bible and and understand the context of what's taking place. But he is a man of great humility here. And when you're in a difficult situation and you find yourself wanting to kind of get out of the limelight, it's still important to remember the two things that we've said before. And what is that when you are really overwhelmed? And that is to do the next thing and to do the right thing. Do the next thing and do the right thing. Whatever the next thing is for you, in those times of difficulty where lifting one foot is challenging. Do the next thing that God has called you to do, that you know is a God-given responsibility that you have, and do the right thing. Plead by the power of the Holy Spirit to do the right thing. And verses 8 and following, it describes that conquest in some detail. And so we see the sovereignty of God that these cities are being brought into conquest and will be part of Israel once David becomes king as well. There's a very real sense in which he is making up here for the deficiency of Saul. In verses 8 and 9, it specifically mentions the Amalekites. And you recall again, it was King Saul that was given the task to remove the Amalekites from the area altogether. And he failed to do that. And so here's David coming back and picking up where King Saul has failed. And we see that set forth very clearly here as a reminder of the distinction between King David and Saul. And so it ends with the reality that he's simply spending some time there and King Akish is confused. King Akish genuinely believes that David is now a comrade of his. He doesn't really understand the big picture at all. And that often occurs that people around us have no understanding of the big picture of what God is doing in our lives. They're only able to look at the immediate circumstances. They have no idea 
that they are looking at children of the Most High God. They have no idea that they are looking at the sons and daughters for all eternity of God. And so we recognize that we have a very different calling, a background, a present, a future than those around us. But those around us don't see it. And King Akish did not see it here either. Well, when we're in a despairing situation, I said the name of the sermon was not despairing. Biblical hope in Christ and his gospel, renewed by the word of God, by the Lord's day, the Lord's supper, and the season of Advent, God gives us opportunities, significant opportunities, to pull ourselves out, to be pulled out by the Holy Spirit as we draw near to God. How good our God is. Despair is a loss of hope. And what is that hope for? It's for improved and lasting change and for true joy. Listen to that again. Despair is a loss of hope. People who are depressed have a lost sense of hope. The short answer to that is they think things are always going to be this way. That it's never going to get better. But there is the possibility of great improvement and lasting change and for true joy, both in this life and the life to come. We need to look to Jesus with the eyes of faith. I often read the book of Revelation on Sunday morning. I get up pretty early on Sunday morning, and I often read Revelation, either in its entirety or a significant part of it. I always read the seven letters, almost without fail. Those seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, I read Revelation on Sunday morning because it reminds me of the big picture. It reminds me of where I am. I like to go to the kiosk when I'm in the mall and find out where I am. And Revelation reminds me where I am. But Revelation 2 and 3, those seven letters, can be translated like this. Hold on. I'm coming. It won't always be this way. That's what he's saying in those seven letters. He says it in more detail. Things we need to hear. Hold on. I'm coming. It won't always be this way. And I need to hear that. I need to hear that often. And so on the Lord's Day, I turn and I remind myself of where I am in the big picture. And that's what we're to do. The entire book of Revelation is a timetable that reminds us that there is a day in which Christ is returning. That O come, O come, Emmanuel is the cry of all believers as we long for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Well, biblical hope in Christ and his gospel is the antidote to despair. Biblical hope in Christ and his gospel, the very character and nature of his person that he cannot go against himself, and he has made us the promise that he will return again. We see that, if you recall, he says it himself, and then, of course, the angels tell the disciples that in Acts chapter 1, when they, after the ascension, they say, he will come again, just as you saw him depart. And we remind ourselves of the biblical hope in Christ, of the work of his gospel, that his blood continues to cry out more effectively than the blood of Abel. How effectively did the blood of Abel cry out? God heard it. God heard the blood of Abel in the ground after Cain had killed him. And God came because of that. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews that the blood of Christ continues to cry out more effectively than the blood of Abel. And so when our sins come before us, we're reminded of that. And we hold on. Our hope is renewed in the Word of God as we read in Revelation and any other portion of Scripture. We are greatly encouraged about the nature of God, about the work of Christ, about the present work of the Holy Spirit and about the temporal nature of everything we now know. The temporal nature of everything we now know.
hope is greatly renewed as we keep our perspective on the big picture. Our hope is renewed by the Word of God, even by our sin. I want you to think about that. That blows me away, although I know it to be true in my own life. Thomas Brooks made that observation that our hope is renewed in the Word of God even as we see sin in our lives. God, the Holy Spirit, can use our sin to renew our hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thomas Brooks, writing in The Crown and Glory of Christianity, writes this. It's an essay on we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. What does that have to do with King David? It means that the persecution that you're going through right now and continuing to go through, God is working that together for good. And whatever you're going through this morning, God is working that together. Here's what Mr. Brooks says. Mr. Brooks, you may recall, is the one whom, of all the uh, Puritans, Charles Spurgeon said that this was his favorite. In fact, he published a book called Smooth Stones from the Brooks. There were quotes from Thomas Brooks. This is Thomas Brooks saying, All the afflictions and all the temptations and all the oppressions and all the oppositions and all the persecutions which befall a godly man shall work for his good. Shall work for his good. Every cross and every loss and every disease which befalls the holy man shall work for his good. Every device, every snare, every deceit, every stratagem, and every enterprise of Satan against that holy man shall work for his good. They shall all help to make him more humble, more holy, more heavenly, more spiritual, more faithful, more fruitful, more watchful. Every prosperity and every adversity, every storm and every calm, every bitter and every sweet, every cross and every comfort shall work for the holy man's good. When God gives a mercy, that shall work for his good. When God takes away a mercy, that shall work for his good. Yes, even all the falls and all the sins of the saints shall work for their good. Oh, the care, the fear, the watchfulness, the tenderness, the zeal which God raises in the souls of his saints by their very falls. Saints can sing the praises of God more loudly from their hearts. And sinners can sing louder still. Oh, the hatred, the indignation, and the detestation which God raises in the hearts of his children against sin by their very falling into sin. Listen to that again. By experiencing sin, a Christian can learn to hate it more. Oh, the hatred, the indignation, and the detestation which God raises in the hearts of his children against sin by their very falling into sin. Oh, what love to Christ, what thankfulness for Christ, what admiration of Christ, what cleaving to Christ, what exalting of Christ, what drawings from Christ's grace are saints led to by their very falls. It is the glory of God's holiness 
that he can turn spiritual diseases into holy remedies. God can do anything, including bring glory to his name in our sin. He can turn spiritual diseases into holy remedies. He can turn soul poisons into heavenly cordials. He can prevent sin by sin and cure falling by falling. Oh, Christian, what though friends and relations frown upon you, even though enemies are plotting and conspiring against you, even though needs like armed men are breaking in upon you, even though men rage and devils roar against you, even though sickness is devastating your family, even though death stands every day at your elbow, yet there is no reason for you to fear nor faint. Because all these things shall work for your good. Yes, there is a wonderful cause of joy and rejoicing in all the afflictions and tribulations which come upon you, considering that they shall all work for your good. Christians, I am afraid. I'm afraid that you do not run so often as you should to the breast of this promise, nor draw that sweetness and comfort from it that it would yield and that your several cases may require. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I have been the longer upon this verse because the condition of God's people calls for the strongest encouragement and the choicest and the sweetest comforts. We can certainly see the application of that today, how we need to quote that to ourselves and stand upon the precious promises of that. Hope is renewed by the Lord's day as well. When Moses is a shepherd just before being called to lead his people out of Egypt, a great event occurs. He looks on the mountain and he sees a fire. And over a period of time, he observes that it is a fire. It's actually a a burning bush. But he also observes that the bush is not being consumed. And he makes this statement. I'm going to turn aside and see this great sight. The Lord's Day, brothers and sisters, is our opportunity to turn aside and see the great sight of God. To turn aside from all of the things that attend our attention and require it, and necessarily so. He was a shepherd with lots of responsibilities. But something marvelous was taking place on the side of that mountain, and he wanted to go look into that. And something marvelous is taking place every day, and the Lord's Day is the opportunity to free ourselves from all other concerns. Turn aside and see the great sight of God. See the great sight of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. If because of the Sabbath you turn aside your foot, from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own ways, and from seeking your own pleasure, and speaking your own words, then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Lord's day is an antidote. To despair, it is one of the ways by which God gives us biblical hope. The Apostle John begins 
the letter of Revelation saying I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And finally, hope is renewed in the Lord's Supper. As we come to the Lord's Supper table today, we're reminded to do this in remembrance of Christ. God himself gives us this wonderful remembrance of both the Passover and of the work of Christ himself completing what the Passover foretold. And we're reminded as we come to this table that he who began a good work in us will complete it. We're reminded that he that was taken out of the sight of the disciples will return, that he will come again in glory. And we're reminded that it won't always be this way. Hold on, I'm coming. And hope can be renewed by the season of Advent, Advent, the yearly expectation of his coming. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then the next verse, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The season of Advent is to focus on that passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. Comfort one another with the words of the return of Christ. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we comfort one another and preach to ourselves and thank our God that we can hold on. He's coming. It won't always be this way. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for this opportunity to be reminded that indeed Christ and his gospel is the antidote to our despair and sadness and melancholy. May it be, Father, that any sadness in our hearts would be a doorbell chiming out that we might run to you in our prayer closets, that we might draw near to you Stand upon the precious promises of your word and preach to ourselves. God, make us fruitful and effective preachers to our own souls and then to others as well. That we might stimulate and encourage one another to love and good deeds. That we would receive from your good and wise and all-powerful hand what you have for us. We want the restoration of your very image in us. And so we leave it to your good hand and your perfect wisdom and your perfect timing. Be glorified in us as we look unto Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Receive now the blessing of God for the people of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.
You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reformed Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me, worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree. And we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see.